You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. We come to the conclusion now of our story of Jacob. We've been looking at wrestling with life through the eyes of Jacob, this great wrestler, and the story of his coming to faith, because it's really the story of our own coming to faith. And it climaxes here in chapter 32 of Genesis, and There's no other way to put it except to say that God assaults Jacob. It's shocking, and I'd love to think of some way that I could sugarcoat that for you, but uh, some of you know what that feels like. Some of you may know what that feels like someday in the future, but that's what happens to Jacob. God literally assaults him. And if you ask Jacob, um, did you invite God to do this in your life? Uh, I don't think he's going to say yes. But if you ask Jacob after the fact, are you glad that God did this in your life? And he's going to tell you, you know, I, would trade, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for this particular encounter uh, with God. It is the one that makes the difference uh, in Jacob's life, and it is the one that will make the difference in your life and in mine as well. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, uh, verses 22 through 32. You find this here on page 26 of our Pew Bible. And let's stand together as God's people and read his word aloud. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. I'd like to discuss this story with you this morning under three headings. Incognito, awe, and faith. First, uh, incognito. Jacob, as we know, is a wrestler. Uh, He's born a wrestler. His name, Jacob, 
is, I guess you could call a, a wrestling hold. It's a move, so to speak. Uh, it means heel. And you know the story because Jacob was born a twin. His brother comes out of the womb just a second ahead of him. And Jacob is uh, found wrestling with Esau, holding him by his heel. And so the name, Jacob, or heel, one who grips uh, the heel. And so the story of Jacob's life, as we've been studying it together, unfolds as a story of one who is wrestling. Jacob never meets a character in the story with whom he doesn't find himself wrestling. He's wrestling with his twin brother Esau. He's wrestling with his father Jacob. He's wrestling with his uncle Laban. Wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. This is his, his M.O. as he works his way uh, through life. But now he comes, ladies and gentlemen, to the matches of all matches. This is Jacob versus God. <laughs> you go, wow, Bambi and Godzilla is one thing, but God, really, Jacob, here it comes. This is like, the, I guess, the super finals. It's Jacob and God. But the thing about it is the narrator or the man who does color for us uh, as he uh, narrates this great sporting event um, doesn't let us know that Jacob is, in fact, wrestling with God. In fact, we're not even sure of the way the story is told that Jacob knows that he's wrestling with God. In fact, I want to suggest to you, Jacob knows he's not. And we know he's not also. We know who it is that Jacob is wrestling in this story. We know he's wrestling with Esau. Really? Why do I say that? Well, because of the whole rest of chapter 32 in Genesis. You know, it, it, it's a long buildup to this match. It's kind of like Rocky, you know, it's like two hours of training for five minutes of fighting. And we just read the five minutes, but the training part makes it very clear who the opponent will be. And it's Esau. Jacob, just to review, you know, 20 years ago, left Canaan, left his hometown because uh, his brother Esau was um, furious at him because he'd stolen Esau's blessing. And Esau had murderous intent towards Jacob, going to kill you if it's the last thing I ever do. Jacob goes, time to go find a new wife somewhere far away, Mesopotamia, 400 miles away, and there he's been for the last 20 years. He's grown in wealth. This blessing is taking effect in his life, and now God has said, go back to Canaan. This is the land that I'm promising you, and Jacob heads back, but he knows he's got to do business with this one uh, unfinished bit with his brother Esau. Now, we've come to find out Esau has left Canaan himself and he's gone down to the land uh, of which he will be the father, uh, Seir, Mount Seir. It becomes called Edom later on. He's down southeast of Canaan. And, and uh, Jacob gets word of this, and so as he heads back home, Jacob, wanting to do business with Esau, sends couriers down to Seir to say to his brother Esau, I'm coming home. Won't you come and greet me? And the couriers return to Jacob and they say, he's coming. He's coming. And he's coming with 400 men. Uh-oh. And Jacob's just thinking, maybe these aren't florists and caterers uh, for the great reconciliation party. 400 men. And he gets to worrying about this and fretting and planning. And that's what we read about in chapter 32. It's the strategies, it's the plans, all these ideas. He's a shrewd man, Jacob is. And he says, you know what? Let's first of all mitigate the damages. Let's divide my wealth and party, everything I own, into separate 
packages. If he takes out one, maybe another part might survive. And he goes, let's, let's also try to appease Esau. I mean, if I can send ahead these massive gifts of wealth and installments, he'll get one at a time and maybe his mood will soften. Maybe he'll begin to think that he's getting the blessing after all, you know, because, or, or, or that I'm willing to share with him or something. And so he's got all this planning and strategies and he's all ready uh, to go and it's all spring set and loaded and now night has fallen and Esau withdraws at the ford of Jabbok. Jabbok is a tributary into the Jordan River. He's just east of the Jordan and, and he's alone and it's dark. And then all of a sudden, with very little introduction from the narrator, bam! Jacob is jumped. He's assaulted. He falls to the ground. And here it is. This is the match. Esau has found him. And these two are wrestling and grappling and scraping in the dust. And we just know uh, that it's Esau. The funny thing is, though, we're not sure. I mean, actually, it seems that Jacob is not quite able to make out the facial features of this man. He's He's shadowy, he's ambiguous, he's real because he's strong. But who is he really? The narrator has set us up to look for the face of this intruder in the two verses that precede the section we read, verses 20 and 21. He uses the word face five times in the Hebrew, in idioms. And Everett Fox, Hebrew scholar, translates these two verses this way. Jacob's speaking says, I will wipe the anger from his face with the gift that goes ahead of my face. Afterward, when I see his face, perhaps he will lift up my face. The gift crosses over ahead of his face. You see, so we're looking for the face of this intruder. Who is it? Who is it? Well, now, of course, Jacob thinks he's wrestling with Esau. He thinks this is just like all the other matches. He's wrestling with life. And I think it is like all the other matches. Only the difference is, when he thinks he's wrestling with life, he's really wrestling with God. And the same is true for you and for me. We think that we're wrestling with the checkbook. We think we're wrestling with our spouse, our teacher, our employer, our roommate, the balance sheets. We think we're wrestling with our compulsive behaviors, our disappointments, and in all of those things, in fact, if we could but see the face of the one who engages us in this grappling assault, we would see somewhere the face of God himself, but hidden to us. So Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, writes, Faith is awe in the presence of the divine incognito. Faith is awe in the presence of the divine incognito. Divine incognito, of course, means God unrecognized, God cloaked, God uh, in a stocking cap, with sunglasses, unmanifest, God hidden, and it is just this God that wrestles with Jacob, incognito. Jacob wants to hold on to this man long enough for the sun to rise on him. He's wounded, he's desperate, but he's strong, and he holds on to him. 
And, and this man desperately wants to get away before the sun rises because he wishes to remain incognito. He, he just wants to be the struggle of Jacob's life. He doesn't want Jacob to see him because he's trying to provoke Jacob to faith, to see God, to have awe in the presence of the struggles of life, to know that somehow the one thing that we wrestle with isn't the thing at all. It's the one who loves us and who is with us and who is for us and who really wants to bless us. And Jacob will name this place Peniel, which means the face of God. He, he doesn't actually see the face of this man at any point in time, but he comes by degrees through this horrible night to realize that this is God, ultimately, grappling with him. And to grapple with this crisis in his life is really to grapple with God. And so he says, I have seen in this the face of God. I have held on to the bare promises of God in the midst of my pain. Seen cognito. Secondly, is the response, uh, and uh, the response is awe. I would define awe as um, being gripped by what makes no sense to you. Being gripped by a paradox. Bart might even say a contradiction. Something that I don't know how it could be, and perhaps it just can't be in any other place or way that I can imagine. And yet it's gripping to me. And yet it's awful and wonderful in a way that provokes joy. Now, Jacob is in just such a, a place. He's got nothing but awe. Because there are two things that are happening to him that he just can't compute. The first is that God would assault him, that God would assault him. And the second is that he could prevail against God in this combat. Many of us would refuse to believe that God would ever assault anybody. It just, it just couldn't happen. God is love, right? And yes, he is. But the God of Jacob is somehow startlingly, startlingly uh, un. Um, sentimental. If you don't believe me, take Jacob's word for it. Ask Jacob. He's just encountered God and Jacob's just had the quiet time of his life, you know, kind of quiet devotions, none of this find your happy place, meditate on this phrase over and over again. I mean, here's Jacob. He's come down to the river to play, pray. He's in the garden alone. And God has said, I am going to take you down, son. And they grapple right in the dust. What is this? There's no sentimentality about this figure. He comes to do business with Jacob. He comes to stand against Jacob, to oppose him. Because Jacob is a product of this world. And God stands opposed to this world and all of its systems that raise up its head against the blessing that God wants to give, the blessing for which God created originally. This is God's divine no to Jacob. And many would refuse to believe that God would ever assault anybody. And at the same time, many would refuse to believe that God uh, could be prevailed against. That a human being could prevail against God. After all, God is the Almighty. And there's no question about that either. But there's something about Jacob's God that is remarkably unjudgmental. In the midst of this fray, the dust is flying, it's dark, and we really can't make out who's doing better than whom 
Is it Esau? Is it Jacob? And as we begin to think it could be God, we think, okay, he's going to subdue this man, is he not? And we hear from this furball a cry out, says, let me go. And the narrator doesn't tell us here in verse 26 who says that. We just assume that that's Jacob crying out for mercy. And yet let the sentence continue. But Jacob said, I will not let you go. We say, wow. The one who cried out, let me go. It's not Jacob. It's the man. It's God. Is it in any world of worlds possible that somehow the humanity of Jacob could overcome the divinity of this stranger? Is it in any way possible that this figure could cry out for mercy under the wrath of a human being, Jacob? Could he so empty himself of, of, of his divine power as to become a victim of humanity? It just doesn't seem possible. And so Jacob, though, knows that this is his reality. This is the mystery of the night that so grips him. He must hold these two things together. On the one hand, there is the divine no condemnation of all of his strategies of grasping and trying to create an identity and a life for himself. On the other hand, there is God's endorsement. There is God's blessing that says, I am for you. I give you a new name. You strive with me and prevail. He doesn't know how these two things, but they, but they are both things that he must hold on to because they hold on to him. And then the sun will rise on this horrible night and the mists will clear and the narrator will show us just Jacob now alone. He rises on an injured hip. The pain of having done combat with God. And yet he's filled with awe and joy. And we hear his confession of faith in verse 30 when he says, How I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. Later on, Moses would say, No man could ever see God's face and live. It would result in certain death. And yet in the midst of the trials of his life, he has seen the divine incognito. He has found himself in awe, holding these two deep mysteries together and knows that in them, in that place, he has seen God and lived. This is what the scriptures call faith. Faith, as Bart says, is awe in the presence of the divine incognito. And, and faith is responding to what God does in our life. It's holding on to his action in your life, and not your own action, his. You see, when Bard is uh, penning these words uh, about faith, he is meditating on a verse at the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans 1.16. It's the greatest of all expositions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the book of Romans. And, and Paul introduces it with this phrase in 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who has faith. He's writing about the gospel. And the gospel, of course, is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the man from God who has taken on our humanity to die on the cross. And in that moment, God stands opposed to all of humanity and what we have done in our lives and on this planet. He says no and brings the judgment of a just, almighty God. And yet, on the third day, in the mists of the early morning, this same man, this human being who has grappled with our sin, also grapples uh, in life. He rises forth from the tomb to present us human beings now to the Father with commendation, to present us as righteous and whole, as those who have wrestled with death itself and prevailed and who are now alive, alive before God and who belong to him. This is the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He writes, of course, about this same God who presents himself in the dust of Peniel to Jacob. And the awe, which is faith, seals itself to Jacob with a new name. The change in Jacob is not a change in character internal to who he is. He's not a good man now, an upstanding citizen. He's still Jacob, but he is also Israel. The change in him is a change in God, as God is the one who renames him and commends him. See what happens. We see this reality most clearly in Esau. We look in the next chapter, we see it turns out Esau is not still Jacob's opponent. We don't know how this is possible. Yet over the 20 years, something has happened in Esau's life that he no longer wishes to kill Jacob. In fact, he wishes to be his brother again. We see in verse 4 of chapter 33, now as these two, Jacob limping and Esau coming to find his brother, meet one another, Esau ran to meet him, embraces him, falls on his neck and kisses him, and they wept. <laughs> Esau looks up and he sees the women and the children, and he says, who are these with you? And Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given, your servants. And the family gathers around and Jacob says, how do you like my gifts? And Esau says, I don't need any presents from you, my brother. We are together and reconciled now. Notice the salvation between two brothers, which is really a picture for us of the salvation that Jacob has experienced in God. A picture of faith. I say this for two reasons. First of all, notice that it's still Jacob, still deceiving Jacob after this wrestling match. I say that because Esau just assumes that Jacob and his caravan would want to join him and move with him down to Seir uh, to be together. And so Esau says, well, let's all go. We'll, we'll walk with you. We'll, we'll all travel as one great company. And Jacob uh, goes, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, he gives him kind of a Seattle a nice. He goes, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go ahead? We're kind of tired and we'll just meet you down there. Okay, does that sound good? And Esau goes, okay, that's great, and goes, leaves. But Jacob has no intention of going to Seir. 
immediately turns right around and makes plans to go to Canaan. And you go, this is the same Jacob? Where's the transformation of one who has been saved? I tell you, transformation is a part of salvation, but it's not its core. Its core isn't something that happens in your life. Its core is something that happens in God's life. And we see that, secondly, in the way that Jacob responds to Esau's face. Notice in verse 10, Jacob says a very interesting thing when these two are reunited. Jacob says, truly, Esau, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Since you have received me with such favor. That word favor in the Hebrew is oftentimes translated grace. Jacob says, you know, when I look at you, Esau, there's something about you that reminds me of the grace of God. Not just because Jacob spent a night wrestling with what he thought was Esau and finding out it was God. I mean, he, it, it, no one, if not Jacob, should know what the, the, the face of God looks like. He says, you know, I recognize something, Esau, in your face. And what does Jacob see in Esau's face? He sees one who has changed his relationship towards him. He sees one who was at one point hostile and judgmental and wanted to assault him because he had done wrong. But now he sees in his face one who has found a way to bring reconciliation and peace and to express love and to be one of one family again. And so Jacob knows that what God has done in the dust of Peniel before his face is not to change Jacob. It's to change the divine relationship to Jacob. It's to say to one who had been Outcast, you belong to me. For God has run just as Esau ran to make reconciliation with Jacob. This is the awe. This is the mystery of these two things. That in Jesus Christ, God has held his justice and his love, his power and his mercy together. So that you and I can be today both sinner and saint. Because we walk out of here different but because we walk out of here in awe of the God who changes his relationship to us in Jesus Christ. God gives Jacob a new name, and he gives us a new name as well. As surely as Jacob's naming himself was a confession of sin, yes, I am the schemer, the one who is the supplanter, Yes, I am everything that Esau says I was when Esau uses my name in vain and says, that nasty Jacob, he truly is the supplanter. Jacob owns that. But God says, that is not who you are. Now you are Israel. You are the one who strives with God and prevails. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow our heads before you on Pentecost Sunday, a day when you wanted to so reassure your people that you were present to them, you were with them, that you sent this loud howling wind and these tongues of fire and the nation's languages spoken by those who had not studied them. And you filled the place with awe. Uh, but you've not chosen to do that this morning. This morning you have chosen to call us to awe in the face of your unrecognizability. 
when we cannot see the signs of your glory in our lives and see only the struggle. We pray because of Jacob's encouragement, we might realize that you are the one who holds on to us in just those places. And that it's those very places that you use in our lives to provoke us to faith. And so help our unbelief, we pray. We pray for those of us who have wrestled with you knowingly for years that you'd strengthen our faith. We pray for those of us who may, for the first time, understand what it means to have good news and to come to faith. Lord, may we be in awe of what you have done in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.